Hello, and welcome to the Cambridge American History Seminar podcast. This is the fourth episode of Lent Term 2019 in our series of brief conversations with academics who come to present at our weekly seminar. Thanks for listening. I'm Richard Sage, a PhD student at Sydney Sussex College here at the University of Cambridge, and I'm very happy to be joined today by Andrew Hartman, who is Professor of History at Illinois State University. Andrew's first book, Education and the Cold War, The Battle for the American School, was published by Palgrave Macmillan in 2008. His second book, A War for the Soul of America, A History of the Culture Wars, was published by the University of Chicago Press in 2015. Andrew is the founder and president of the Society for U.S. Intellectual History. He has also co-edited a book with Raymond Habersky entitled American Labyrinth, Intellectual History for Complicated Times, which was published by Cornell University Press in 2018. Andrew has also written for a number of popular publications, including Dissent, The Baffler, and The Washington Post, and co-hosts a podcast dedicated to intellectual history, uh, Trotsky and and the Wild Orchids. He is currently an organization of American historians' distinguished lecturer, as well as the Fulbright British Library Eccles Center Research Scholar, and is working on a new book about Karl Marx in America. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us here on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Richard. I'm happy to be here. Um, So today we're going to talk about your latest book, um, as well as your wider research and experiences as as an historian. Great. Um, So I guess my first questions are, why Marx and why now? Marx has been in the news in the UK recently um, because of vandalism of his monument in Highgate Cemetery in uh, London, um, and his legacy remains highly controversial. Can you tell us a bit about your latest project, how you became interested in Marx and Marxism in the United States, and what motivated you to begin work on this book? Yeah, sure. So it seems to me that the two recent acts of vandalism at Highgate sad though they may be, speak to the persistent relevance of Marx that people continue to be this angry about Marx means, well, Marx is still in the news. Um, I think the reason why I decided to do this book at this particular time in my life is there's kind of three reasons. The first is historiographical, and that is that there have been several books written about the American reception of European philosophers, um, Jennifer Ratner Rosenhagen's American Nietzsche being the best in this collection, but there have been similar books on Heidegger and, and Burke, and you know the list sort of goes on. But nobody's ever done this about Marx, and to me this seems curious because, well, um, I can't think of another 19th century European philosopher who perhaps had more influence or at least has more resonance across different times, um, including in the U.S. So I just thought that historiographically, this is something uh, worth my time. And um, so the second reason is um, sort of speaks to what you alluded to, and that is the um, contemporary relevance of Marx um, in a time of deep divisions across the world. um, People are questioning capitalism, unlike we've seen in a long time. this has given rise to this sort of particular moment. We've seen the rise of the far right again, but also there's been a rise of the far left, not quite as formidable as the far right, and yet there has been um, some movement on the left, both 
in, in Europe, in the UK, of course, with Corbyn, and then also in the United States. And accompanying that in the US, there's been um, more interest in Marx than there has been in, at least since the 1960s. So in my research, I've uncovered um, four distinct eras in which there are these what I call Marx booms, and that is time periods when a lot of people read Marx, a lot of people talk about Marx, and Marx even makes his way into mainstream sort of media, say the New York Times. Um, the Gilded Age would be the first, the 1930s, the 1960s, and I think we're in such a moment right now. And so there's a lot of resonance, including... Um, and so I think the it's a good time for this book. But then, so those are two reasons, but at a more sort of personal or even prosaic level... Um, I have long been interested in Marx, probably since I was like 19 or 20 and first encountered uh, some of his writings. In my 20s, I was in this Marxist reading group for years and years, all the way through graduate school. Um, but I didn't write a book about Marx because, well, I wanted to have a career as a historian of American history in the United States, and I guess I didn't think that that was the wisest career move. But uh, now I'm a full professor. I've written a couple of books. <laughs> What the hell? Absolutely. Um, so, although many historians um, would reject Marxism as a political ideology or program, um, history as a discipline has been profoundly influenced by Marxist thought. Um, this was particularly true in the 1970s and maybe in the 1960s as well, um, with the rise of social history. Um, however, the subsequent popularity of post-structuralism and cultural history in the 1980s and 1990s, which I think you talk about a, a bit in, in your book about the culture wars, um, seem to indicate a move away from questions of political economy. Um, more recently, and particularly since the 2008 financial crisis, there's been a renewed his, uh, interest in the history of capitalism. Um, do you think this will prompt historians to return to some of, some of the fundamental questions that Marx was grappling with? Yeah, that's an excellent question. I think that um, yes is the short answer uh, to add a bit of sort of meat to that answer. Um, yeah, I think you're right that in the 1960s and 70s with the rise of social history, um, there were a lot of people who probably considered themselves Marxists trying to write a sort of history following maybe the three great British Marxists, Hobbes, Baum, E.P. Thompson, and, and Christopher Hill. But there, there were sort of the American variants um, trying to write a history from the bottom up, really interested in the question of labor, really interested in questions of working class um, politics, working class power. Um, but yes, in the 1980s and particularly in the 1990s, a lot of the sort of headwinds or, or the tailwinds for Marxist scholarship died down and there were some massive headwinds and we saw the rise instead of post-structuralism, as you said. Really what we're seeing here is cultural history, and um, there was still a focus on power, but power was much more diffuse. It was less about sort of class, it was less about capitalism, and more about sort of like people's um, bodies, people's inner selves. Um, and although I think that this particular historiographical move was important, I learned tons from it, especially as an intellectual historian, in the sense that um, I learned the ways in which ideas sort of, sort of carry across contexts, um, and that, that became important um, to me because social history didn't necessarily think about ideas as sort of carrying across contexts. It was sort of very focused on 
deep embedded contexts. But I do think that something was lost as well, and so we might think of cultural history and post-structuralism in the 80s and 90s as a sort of like academic accompaniment to Reaganism or neoliberalism, even though almost everybody engaged in the pursuit was on the, well, they would have considered themselves on the left or liberal. Um, but yes, I think there has been a return to the big questions of capitalism, especially in the wake of the 2008 recession. Um, and I, I maintain, and this is one of my arguments in my book that I'm writing, and one of the reasons why I think it's an important book to write, I maintain that um, if you're going to ask questions about modern capitalism, you are probably going to return to some of the questions that Marx asked or sought answers to. Absolutely. Um, you just mentioned that um, obviously you're an intellectual historian um, and in American Labyrinth um, you've written about uh, the uh, intellectual history of the American left. Um, we've spoken a bit already about the resurgence of um, progressives um, in the US and this kind of moment that we're in now um, and in the UK as well. Um, and with this revival of interest in socialism in the United States, um, there's kind of an open question about who's going to be the Democratic nomination for the 2020 election. Um, people like Bernie Sanders, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Elizabeth Warren, um, have really put progressivism back in the news. Um, do you think this uh, indicates a significant departure in political life in America? Um, or are we seeing a re-engagement with these older traditions, um, you know, which were influenced by Marx? Um, are we seeing the end of American exceptionalism or at least the end of a particular iteration of that narrative? Okay, good questions. A lot going on there. Um, I think... I'm extremely interested in the 2020 Democratic primaries because I think it will be very telling in terms of where we are, the sort of political conjuncture we're in. Um, 2016 definitely saw the emergence of a growing left, especially among young people, um, in those who not only voted for Bernie Sanders, but, but campaigned for him and sort of built a movement around his campaign. Obviously, it wasn't a big enough movement to carry the nomination. And I think there's some questions about whether how many people who voted for him actually sort of feel themselves a part of a left movement or they were just looking for a candidate who was sort of an outsider compared to the sort of insider Clinton family dynasty, as many people thought about the Clintons or Hillary Clinton's candidacy in 2016. So I think there are a lot of questions going forward. Um, Bernie Sanders is going to run again. I'm fairly certain of that, but he might have announced as much by the time this um, podcast gets aired. Um, and I think he will sort of represent the far left of the Democratic primaries. But Elizabeth Warren, as you mentioned, is also running and she's sort of carrying some of these. What's been interesting is that most candidates who have announced have nodded towards the left, have nodded towards things like universal health care, Medicare for all, um, the uh, raising the minimum wage, um, all of the things that Bernie Sanders and the left have been pushing. So there is some momentum there, but I think it's an open question as to whether um, the, the left can carry the majority. It's an open question as to whether um, they can sort of pressure whoever wins the candidacy to like follow through on these broad um, 
sort of labor universal projects that Bernie Sanders has been focusing on. The end of American exceptionalism. Um, <laughs> well, this is like really in an interesting question because um, the very sort of term American exceptionalism emerged in 1920s and 1930s debates on the far left, um, Marxist and communists. And then, um, and, and the, the question for them was, well, why is it so much more difficult to sort of form a communist socialist left in the United States than in Europe? And so it was like part of a spinoff of Werner Sombart's famous question, why no socialism in America, which he asked in 1906. Um, and so that's like the, the sort of historical origins of this concept of American exceptionalism, although obviously many Americans of different ideological stripes thought in such terms well before then. What you see happening is that by the 1940s and 50s, it becomes much more of a liberal and then a conservative thing. Um, and so exceptionalism isn't just why is the United States different on the question of labor or socialism, but more is why is the United States superior? Why is the United States democratic as opposed to these authoritarian regimes all across Europe and elsewhere? Um, and of course, in this sense, American exceptionalism since World War II has sort of reigned supreme as both a Cold War and imperial, sort of post-Cold War imperial ideological project. Um, and I think it's been sort of foundering for quite some time. And if indeed um, an American left does emerge, um, that obviously puts that into question. But again, this is all just sort of like conjecture. Absolutely. Um... So, I mean, we're getting at a lot of the issues that are very current at the moment. Um, you also suggest in American Labyrinth that, um, that the book was uh, being written, it was being written during the transition from Barack Obama to Donald Trump. Um, and you suggest that the project was in part a response to that crisis. Um, and you've also written about the political battles over the uh, history curriculum and uh, museum exhibitions during the culture wars in the 90s. Um, my question is, do you think historians should have a more prominent role in debates about contemporary issues? And what should they be doing to engage the public? Yeah, again, more excellent questions. Um, so the origins of this book, American Labyrinth, Intellectual History for Complicated Times, which I co-edited with uh, Ray Habersky, who's also my Trotsky and Wild Orchids podcast co-host, um, we started working on it in about 2015 and 2016, and really there were these big questions that we were trying to grapple with. And so we asked our contributors to, these are big sort of political questions. We asked our contributors to sort of bring intellectual history to bear on these big questions. Um, and so I think that's something that historians should do more of. Um, and in doing so, I think we're working against the grain of punditry, which actually is much more interested in sort of short news cycles and sort of, it seems to be as automatically ahistorical or usually lacking any historical depth to this way in which they approach political problems. And I think um, this is a longstanding problem. It's like always been a problem that probably has gotten worse with um, the sort of like, cable news cycles and then social media but it's always been a problem and i think historians if we serve any public purpose should be to fight against that and so to do that we of course have to seek out ways to speak to the public um and so you know 
you can do this on Twitter. There are a number of historians who have become like massively sort of famous on Twitter. Kevin Cruz Kevin most Cruz. famously, yeah, <laughs> as like just taking on these political pundits and politicians on Twitter and gaining massive um, followings, and then doing these sort of long Twitter threads. We're all sort of familiar with that, um, but I think in any way possible to sort of fight against the tendency, the sort of anti-intellectual ahistorical tendencies of the punditry. But in doing so, I think it's difficult because you don't want to become a pundit yourself because then that sort of like, if you're constantly just following the news cycle as a historian, then what's your purpose as a historian, right? You have to sort of remain just a bit detached from the news cycle because you have to think about the long durée. You have to think about historical patterns. And so that requires deep reading and deep research in history. So it's just walking a fine line. Um, I think maybe the best way to do this is in the classroom teaching. So I think most historians everywhere do this to some degree, but to, I think we should just be very cognizant of um, the public role of teaching. Absolutely. Um, we should talk a bit more about your book, A War for the Soul of America. I think there's a second edition coming out in April. Is that right? That's correct. Um, can you tell us briefly about the book and what's different about this edition? Yeah, so the new edition, um, my editor at the University of Chicago, Tim Menel, asked me to write a second edition, but really the only difference is it'll be exactly the same, except there's a new long conclusion that sort of brings us up to, I guess I finished it in 2018, um, that deals with Trump. And so the book was published in 2015, but I wrote it in 2014 or I wrote, I concluded the writing in 2014. It obviously took longer than that. And at the time, it seemed to me that some of the issues that animated the culture wars in the 80s and 90s were changing, being transformed, maybe even dying out. I could not have predicted, I don't think any of us could have <laughs> predicted Donald Trump. Um, and so when Trump's candidacy really took off and then when he became president, um, it seemed as if to many people that the culture wars were everywhere again. And so that has done wonders for my book sales, which is great, I guess. What's <laughs> bad for the country, what's bad for the world is good for my book sales. No, but more seriously... Well, so it's a, it's a great book. It's, it's, well, thank it you. It was great reading it. So. Thank you, thank you. Um, but more seriously, in the conclusion, which was very short, I just sort of had this, oh, the culture wars are over. We should be, begin to think about our sort of our contemporary political context through a different lens. Then comes Trump and everyone's saying, oh, well, obviously your conclusion's wrong. And so my editors said, well, let's just sort of take a step back and use this as a good chance to put out a second edition. And I wrote a very long conclusion to it, which takes into account not only Trump, but persistent debates about curriculum, about education, about higher education, about the Me Too movement about Black Lives Matter, sort of all the issues swirling in the air that we can sort of tie together as culture wars. And so I sort of back off my claim, obviously, which was overstated to begin with, that the culture wars were dead, and more sort of try to add some nuance about how what's, and, and talk about what's the same and what's different. And sort of in the grand scheme of things, I think this is what we as historians should be in the business of doing, and that is um, talking about change and continuity, and especially focusing on like what 
are the moments of change without sort of overstating it in sort of hyperbolic ways, which I think is the province of punditry. Right. Um, I think we've already alluded um, to the kind of growth of um, interest in intellectual history, um, and it seems to be undergoing something of a resurgence in recent years. Um, I'm particularly thinking of uh, exciting work by scholars such as Jennifer Ratner, Rosenhagen, and Samuel Moyne. I think you've uh, referred to Jennifer's work earlier. Um, can you tell us um, a book or an article that you've read in the last 12 months that has particularly challenged or inspired you? Yeah. Um, so I guess I'm going to promote my friend Jennifer again, but she has a brand new book called The Ideas That Made America. And it's a slender book, I think about 200 pages. Um, and it takes us from basically European contact in the New World all the way up to, well, about the 1990s or 2001, sort of like the era of globalization, close to the present. And, and it moves very fast, but it packs a serious punch. And what I like about this book, even though I think um, I'm a much different type of intellectual historian than Jennifer, what I like about it and what I hope to be able to do is, I think she does it better than anybody writing right now. She takes extremely sort of complex ideas and makes them comprehensible to, you know, this maybe this elusive general reader, but comprehensible to a lot of people who otherwise wouldn't be engaged in intellectual history. She's very good at that, and so I think she's a nice role model for all of us who are working in intellectual history in this new emergence of intellectual history. Um, I also, you know, not to be sort of um, self-promotional, but this book, American Labyrinth, has a couple of essays in there that really inspired me. The first is the introductory essay by James Livingston. Um, and if you're familiar with his work, he's like um, controversial. He likes to take make arguments that seem to go against the grain of conventional wisdom. And he sort of loops his arguments through like discourse that goes back to Hegel and this type of thing. Um, and so he's not for everybody, but he's definitely for me. And I highly encourage people read that introductory essay because what he does is he makes clear that um, intellectual history is the thing that we as American historians should be doing. Um, and again, so this is self-serving in the sense that the thing that has always um, been American history has been debates about what it means to be an American. So, so for him, ideas are the province of American history. And what's so interesting and exciting about this, and I think this is supported also by Jennifer Ratner Rosenhagen's book, is that it cuts against the grain of long-standing sort of anti-intellectual traditions in American history that would assume intellectual history is something Europeans have but Americans don't have that. We might have cultural history or social history. We certainly have political history, but do we have intellectual history? And so both Livingston and Jennifer, I think, make clear that intellectual history should be at the center of our discipline. It's not obviously the only thing we should be doing, but it should be a major part of what we as American historians do. Absolutely, and I, I think um, certainly from my point of view that um, intellectual history allows us to be um, uh, more creative than what we're doing, um, and I think that's very exciting. Um, now, I just want to finish on a couple of questions that um, have kind of become our custom on the American History Seminar podcast. 
Um, and Lewis wouldn't forgive me if I didn't ask them. Uh, so first of all, what is the most interesting place that you've been to for research? Yeah. Um, so right now I'm working at the British Library, which is a really fascinating place to work. I'm enjoying it, not only because it just has all the sources I need in terms of the secondary published sources and a number of what I would consider primary sources in terms of like pamphlets and magazines. I mean, it just... For the type of project I'm working on right now, it's really a perfect place to be. I also like the sort of um, the, the the work setup of the British Library. To me, it's a it's a combination of two other places where I love to do research, and that is the Library of Congress in D.C. and the New York Public Library in New York City. It has the sort of like authority of 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 a national government and all of the documents and everything that. The Library of Congress has, but it also has this air of being public the way the New York Public Library has. So it really is a great place. But the most sort of curious place where I've done research is the Reagan Library in Simi Valley, <laughs> California. And actually, so it's uh, for those who haven't been there, it sits up on this beautiful hill in the Simi Valley overlooking this massive valley, and all you can see all the way to the ocean. The weather is always perfect, of course. Um, but what's so interesting about that library as opposed to other presidential libraries is that the attached museum truly is like sort of a mecca for American conservatives. And so tons and tons of conservatives go there to visit the shrine, visit or sort of sit at the shrine of Reagan. And when I was sitting in the, um, sort of waiting room, waiting to be checked into the library my first day there, um, the security guard was a former Los Angeles cop who just loved and loved Reagan. And he just was like selling Reagan to me. And I'm like, dude, I'm a historian. I'm just, you know, I don't need this proselytizing right now. But in a way, that's like really fascinating, right? It's very different. It's very revealing. Yeah, um, definitely. You don't get that at the Nixon Library. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine not. Um, and I just want to finish with one final question, um, which I think is Lewis's favorite. Um, what is your favorite album? Yeah, that's a tough one for me because I've had so many sort of music periods in my life when I listen to different types of music. But the one that really stands out to me is the one that I first heard when I was like 14 and I was um, like a... I had a very sort of nice middle-class... Uh, suburban upbringing in the United States and, and you know like my, my parents were great my family life was great and yet there was always this sort of, sort of like alienation there and listening to Metallica Master of Puppets really sort of like was a solve for that alienation and I just like at least once a year go back and listen to the entire album again just for nostalgic purposes and I think it's still very good <laughs> amazing brilliant thank you very much for joining us today Andrew it's been a pleasure talking to you and thanks to everyone for listening thank you